0: Well, good morning. Hey, first of all, I just want to take a moment and just, in front of all of you, just thank uh, Chris and Eric for being here. Um, these two men have been uh, ministry partners, friends, mentors to me, and they represent a church of Jesus followers in Ventura that is doing amazing things for the kingdom of God and that I adore and that I think I can commit on behalf of all as us, we will pray for, because God is not done at Ventura Missionary Church, and he is on the move. So thank you, guys. It really means so much to me to have you. Cedar Mill Bible Church, once again, thanks for the warm, warm welcome to Amy and my children and myself. We are, it's a privilege to stand here and serve you and have the opportunity to teach you from this platform um, starting today. But before I dive in, I just want to acknowledge maybe the elephant in the room, and that's this. Today is my first sermon you have not yet heard me preach. And you are all here to judge me. <laughs> I know how you are. I know how this is going to go. And you know, Actually, what I want to say, just right off the top, is that's okay. It's just part of it. It's part of getting to know one another. It's part of sharing our hearts. You guys will be evaluating me. In fact, Carl emailed me this week and suggested that I hand out to all of you NLPEFs, Newly Pastor Evaluation Forms, so you can write down all of your comments, a couple that he suggested... Uh, this guy's no Carl. Uh, boy, we sure miss Carl and a few others. But I decided we'd just skip that, right? Those are just Carl's thoughts. Um, all right, hey, let's let's get to it this morning. Let's jump right in. So if you have a Bible, pull it out. Open to Mark chapter 5. If you did not bring one today, we have one for you in the pew rack right in front of you. Grab one of those. Mark chapter 5. If you're using one of the few Bibles, we're going to be on page 995 this morning. And as you turn... I want to start with a story that will not only set up our message, but will also help you guys get to know me a little bit. It was my freshman year playing basketball at Hastings College, a very small school and of all places, central Nebraska. And over Christmas break that year, our team had an opportunity to play in a holiday tournament. But this was not just any holiday tournament. This tournament was in Hawaii. So in the middle of winter... 12 guys... Not the, 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 the Ventura people did not understand this, but you Portland folks will relate. In the middle of winter, <laughs> 12 guys from Hastings, Nebraska, get on a plane and go to Honolulu, Hawaii for eight days. Now... Uh, For the first four days of the trip, we were very focused. We were there to play in this tournament. We were there to practice and prepare and play hoops. And so that's what the first four days were all about. But then when the tournament was over, we had four days off, four days to simply enjoy life on the island of Oahu. Now, there's all sorts of adventures during that time. But on one day in particular, we jumped in a couple of vans and drove all the way around the island to one of the most famous surfing spots in all of the world, the North Shore. Been there? Anyone? Yeah? All right. As soon as we arrive, a friend of mine from the team, the small forward, Chad Spady, he and I decide... You know, we got to ride some waves. We're in Hawaii. we got to do this thing. And so we find this little rental shop right across the street from the beach. We go in, and because neither one of us were surfers, we decide, you know what? We'll just rent some boogie boards. We'll grab those, and we'll try, you know, this whole wave thing out. Well, I don't know. For some reason, I guess we gave off a little bit of the tourist vibe. And so the guy behind the counter, as we're renting our gear, starts to give us some unsolicited advice. And what he said was, whatever you guys do... Do not take these boogie boards directly across the street because that over there is Sunset Beach, perhaps um, one of the most intense big wave beaches in all of Hawaii. And today, he said, just happens to be a record-setting day. There are 12-foot waves out there. If you go out there, you will die. (laughs) And so we heard that and filtered it through our 19-year-old college-aged brains... And it sounded something like, hey guys, there's some great waves across the street. A chance for a legendary experience. And so we did exactly what we were told not to do. Went across the street, got in the water, got on our boards, found the channel, paddled, or paddled way out to where the waves were breaking, way out in the ocean. And when we arrived, we discovered that we were not alone. Floating out there in this medium-sized posse... Were a bunch of local Hawaiian guys on surfboards, and they did not seem real happy to see us. In fact, they were very clearly giving us the six foot five white boys from Nebraska on boogie boards not welcome here. That, that was the message, and so we got it. We moved down from them a little bit, gave them a little space, and we just floated and watched as these guys hopped on their surfboards and caught waves. And they made it look so easy, it looked delightfully fun. And so, after some moments of watching them, I turned to my friend Chad, and I said, hey Spady, I think I'm taking this next one, and I start to paddle. A big wave is coming, I'm paddling, 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 here it comes, and if you've ever been in the ocean on a wave, you know that the wave comes up behind you, starts to move you forward, and then it sort of lifts you up, pulls you to the very top of the wave, and then there's this moment where you, on a boogie board at least, have to lean down into the wave and and kind of go down the face and catch it. Then you ride it in and have this amazing experience. Well, this wave comes behind me. It picks me up. I'm on the boogie board, paddling, paddling, paddling. And just at that moment where I'm about to lean over and ride down the wave, I look and somehow I have ended up on top of the Empire State Building. (laughs) This is the biggest wave you can possibly imagine. And so instantly... In complete fear, I pull my feet back down to the water, hit like the water breaks, and I roll down the backside of the wave, and now my heart is going. like, And I'm thinking, maybe the guy in the rental shop was right. (laughs) We are going to die. And here's the problem. Even though I did not catch that wave, in the process of attempting to, it has now moved me up, and I am in the crash zone. And there are other waves coming, so now... In a complete panic, I start paddling for the shore, frantic. But of course, I cannot, cannot, cannot outrun the next wave. It picks me up, slams me down into the ocean, rips the board from my arms, and I'm tumbling, 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 like I'm in a washing machine. Finally, when I stop spinning, I begin to swim for the surface to catch some air when the leash that attaches my ankle to the boogie board catches. It, it's catching. It's catching. And it takes me a moment, but I finally figure out that the reason it's catching is because I am accidentally swimming down and not up. And now I know I'm in big trouble. So I turn, get to the surface of the water, take a big gulp of air, and now I'm really panicked. Now I'm really scared, I'm paddling again for the shore, another wave comes, same thing, rips the board, slams me down, and now I'm pretty sure the guy was right in the rental shop, we should not be out here, and I'm picturing the headlines in the newspaper, stupid Nebraska kid killed on boogie board at sunset beach, local surfers cheer, this happens a few more times. I eventually, by the grace of God, make it back to the shore in one piece. But friends, Sunset Beach on the north shore of Hawaii will always remind me of what it's like to know the hopeless, helpless, out-of-control feeling of complete and utter desperation. Ever felt that way? Hopeless, helpless, desperate. Well, in our scripture passage today, Mark, the author of our gospel, He's going to introduce us to two people, two people who meet, meet Jesus and who very different reasons are both experiencing complete and utter desperation in their lives and Jesus in a way that only Jesus can do. He meets them in these moments and then he uses their stories to teach you and I about the kind of faith that he longs for us to have. Mark chapter 5, starting in verse, starting in verse 21 When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. All right, here's what's happening. Jesus has, um, he's up in Galilee, he's on the Sea of Galilee. If we click to the map, the next slide. He's been in this region called the Decapolis, on the southeastern shore of the sea. He went over there to visit, he had some experiences there. This region, the Decapolis, is a very pagan place. The people over there, they hated the Jewish people. They did not like Jesus. In fact, they asked him to leave. At the the end of the previous section, their last words to Jesus are, Will you please leave our region? We don't want you here, Jesus. So Jesus, he heals this man, has an experience with him, but now he's in a boat. He's traveled across to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. He's now back on the northwestern shore. He's back in Galilee, his stomping grounds. In fact, that little town there, Capernaum, That was like Jesus' home base for ministry in the north. So when he was doing ministry, he was kind of headquartered out of Capernaum. So he's very popular there. People know him there. And Mark wants us to remember that. He says, as soon as Jesus lands, he hasn't been on shore for two minutes, and there's an entire crowd of people that have come around him. They just love him and want to be with him. Mark wants us to know right away as we begin this story that the events that are about to happen do not happen in private. These are not private, intimate moments with Jesus. These will be very public moments of faith. A large crowd gathered around Jesus while he was by the lake. Then, verse 22, then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. The most important place in the life of a Jew in Jesus' day, if you were Jewish and you lived in first century Israel, the most important place on the planet was the the temple. Very good. Is that a high school kid? I'm going to give the high school kids credit. Good job, high school kids. I actually don't think it was you, but good work, is the temple. The temple is the most important place on the planet. But if you were a Jew and you lived away from the temple and you didn't have consistent or easy access to the temple, there were these little satellite temples, these smaller local places of worship, and these places were called synagogues. Synagogues. And in these small Galilean towns in the north, the synagogue would have been the epicenter of community life. It was where legal matters were handled. The synagogue is the place where people gathered, where learning took place, where worship was held. The synagogue would kind of be like us taking our government buildings, our schools, our churches, our courthouses, all of our community activity centers and rolling them into this one central place, the synagogue. If you lived in a small Jewish town in Jesus' day, your entire life would have revolved around... The synagogue. And Jairus, Mark tells us, is one of the synagogue rulers. He's one of the guys in charge of the most important place in your town. This means automatically Jairus would have been a very high-class, high-powered citizen. He would have been someone who was revered and honored and respected in the community. He would have been financially very well off. He would have been someone with connections and a lot of influence. Jairus... Is probably one of, if not the most important, significant person in this entire area. But Mark tells us in this moment that his little girl is dying. And so, hopeless and broken and desperate, he shows up at the shore of the lake to meet Jesus. Any parents in the room today? Any fathers? out there who have little girls or maybe you have big girls now but you remember the days when they were little just like it was yesterday do you understand do you remember the responsibility you felt to protect them do you know the love that a dad has in his heart for a daughter does that ring true for you today a few years ago with my youngest daughter Peyton, remember PJ, the littlest one? You met her a couple of weeks ago. She was in the the bright, the little fashionista. Um, yeah, a few years back, when she was just six weeks old, she spiked an extremely high fever. And it's very concerning when kids are that young and they have a high fever. So we took her to the emergency room. Instantly, the doctors check us into the hospital. They're very concerned about about Peyton and. Um, we discovered that what was happening was that she had E. coli in her blood. Very dangerous, unusual situation. It was actually the result of some abnormalities that she had with her kidneys that we fixed later through surgery. But at the time, in this moment, during this week, when we did not know what was happening, it was a very touch-and-go situation. And one of the complications that we encountered that week was that Peyton's veins were extremely small even by six-week-old baby standards they were very small. And the nurses were having a very difficult time getting an IV into her arms or any place in her body to get her the medicine that she so desperately needed. In fact, that week, we watched as I think every single nurse from the NICU poked and prodded and picked at our daughter as she screamed in an attempt to heal her of this Uh, potentially deadly situation. It was not a fun week. They searched all over her body. I think in the end we counted and she had over 35 IV attempts that week. Finally, they found a a place where an IV would stick. It was in her head. And so this is our picture, our six-week-old daughter in the hospital battling this poison running through her veins and she has this needle going into her head, not a fun week, long, painful, frustrating. That's a desperate moment for a dad. And the point is this, friends. I do not want you to just read some words on a page. I do not want you to miss the raw emotion of this story. Don't miss the feelings and the passion and the urgency of this man, Jairus, who usually has his life under control. This is a guy who is the one who's typically helping other people with their problems. Do not miss his desperation in this moment, his panic, the frantic state of his life, this ruler, this leader, this father, as he comes to Jesus, who's finally back from the other side of the lake. Because you see, Kind of a sub-point here that Mark is making, I believe, is this. It does not matter who you are. It does not matter how much money you make. It doesn't matter what you do for a living. It doesn't matter how much clout you have in your community or in your church. Every single one of us, whether we know it or not, is desperately in need of Jesus. And the synagogue ruler this leader, this prominent member of society, he comes and in front of all these people, he falls at Jesus' feet. Some translations tell us that he bowed down before him or he worshipped him. But get the picture here. Historians, biblical scholars tell us that the scene Mark is describing probably looks looked something like this. Jairus, prostrate on the ground before Jesus, on his face. Kissing Jesus' feet, kissing the hem of his garment, kissing the ground in front of him as he weeps and begs and pleads, Jesus, I've got nowhere else to turn. I've got nowhere else to go. You are my only hope. Jesus, I'm desperate. You and you alone can save my daughter. Friends, this is a picture of a man who maybe, for the very first time, has realized how desperately he needs God. And so in response, Jesus and his disciples, they turn and they go with him. They begin to make their way to Jairus' home. And then we're told this in the middle of verse 24. A large crowd followed and pressed around Jesus. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Friends, this woman is on the opposite end of society from the synagogue ruler we just met. You notice that Mark doesn't even give us her name. Why? He does not know her name. She does not matter. No one knows her name. That's because she's about as low on the totem pole as you can go. This woman is a societal outcast. Here's why. Jewish law placed very severe restrictions on women who were hemorrhaging. These women were not allowed to participate in any part of community or religious life. People were forbidden from even touching them. Imagine that. Imagine living your life that way. Everyone at arm's length. Life at a distance from everyone you know. Even this woman's family and closest friends could not come near her, embrace her, touch her, show her any physical affection at all. And Mark tells us that this is the life she has known for 12 years. Furthermore, every dollar to her name had been spent in search of some possible cure. Know her life. Know her life the past 12 years. She and probably probably her family had tried it all. Every doctor, every healer, every spiritual guru who made promises and had passed through town, they had gone to everyone and spent every dime they had. And after 12 years of disappointment, after disappointment, after disappointment, she was not only not better, she's worse. Think for a moment about how much courage and resolve and faith it took for this woman to one more time in front of all these people, even allow herself to hope and think that maybe, just maybe, she might get better. Verse 27, if you are an underliner or a highlighter today, take note of these words. But when she heard about Jesus, When she heard about Jesus. You see, there's something about Jesus that gives this woman the ability to hope one more time. And if that's you today, if you today, for whatever reason, are running on almost empty, on real low hope, let me just tell you about Jesus because he's the hope giver. Now, here's where this story gets a little bit, at least in my mind, cool, interesting, fun, exciting. There's some background to this idea that she has. You know, she says, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. In fact, both M- Matthew and Luke, in their versions of this story, they tell us that she actually comes up and touches the edge of Jesus' cloak. There's a reason for that. Here's the reason. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for edge or fringe of a garment is the word kanaf. Can you say that with me? Kanaf. I'm just making sure you're awake still. Kanaf. Plus it's also that, you know, it's like that sound, which sounds appropriate, inappropriate I mean, to do in church, but today it's going to be okay, right? Don't do that unless I ask you, but we're going to do it one more time, ready? Knaf, Knaf, all right, good, Knaf, it means edge or fringe, I actually need a volunteer, Is there a, I need a, I need a man, oh, there's a high school boy right over here, yeah, come on up, welcome him up. All right, big man, what's your name? Alex, all right, you're going to be a Jewish man today. Yay. Do your best. This is, your, this is like a big acting debut for you. Don't blow it. Okay. Actually, you don't have to do much. Just stand here and do your thing, okay? All right. all right. So Jewish men in Jesus' day and prior would often wear what is called a prayer shawl. They wear it around sometimes, but mostly the prayer shawl would be worn when you went to worship at the synagogue. Now, this is not a prayer shawl. This is actually just an afghan that my wife's grandma made for us, but but it's going to act as our prayer shawl today. And here's how the prayer shawl would work. You'd wear the prayer shawl when you went to uh, Sabbath service to worship at the synagogue or at the temple. And uh, when you had it on, you would grip the edge, the fringe, the kanaf in between your fingers. So you just kind of lace that between your fingers and kind of pinch it. Kind of pinch it. Yeah, there you go. That's good, right? Yeah, kind of with your hands outstretched a little bit. Just kind of thread it through there. There we go, yeah. And you do that because... The fringe, the kanaf of the prayer shawl, represented two things. Uh, It represented the holy name of God, Yahweh. And it represented the Torah, the law of God. And so when you were in synagogue, at service, you would grip the the fringe, the tassels, to remind yourself how much you loved God and how much you loved His holy word. And so you'd have that grip. And then at the end of the service... A priest from the clan of the Levites would get up to pray a benediction over the congregation. And he would have his, his kanaf in his fingers and his prayer shawl on, and he would raise his arms like this to pray a benediction over, over the people. So do that for me, just like this. right? So now he's got a shawl, he's praying. And so this is the picture you would have seen at every single Sabbath service you ever went to from the time you were just a wee little lad until now. A priest praying a benediction over you with his kanaf, with the edge or fringe of his garments extended. And because of this picture, what does it look like he has? It looks like he has, he looks like a superhero, doesn't he? Alex just looks like he's about to go take down the Joker or something here. Um, right. So he, it looks like he has wings. And so this word, kanaf, edge, fringe, began to be associated with the word wings, And so, when the prophet Malachi writes about the Messiah, the chosen one of God who's going to come and deliver God's people and save them, he says this in Malachi chapter 4, verse 2. He says, the son of righteousness, that's the way Malachi refers to Messiah, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. That's the word? Ah, right? Yeah. And so a legend developed during Jesus' day that you could actually take this prophecy literally. That when Messiah showed up on the scene, there would really be healing in His wings, healing in His kanaf, healing in the edge of His garments. And so when this woman, this desperate, bleeding Isolated woman makes her way through the crowd to touch the edge of Jesus' clothes. She is making a very radical faith statement about who she believes Jesus to be and she's saying this, I believe Jesus is Messiah. The chosen one of God. I believe Jesus, even though all my hopes have been dashed, even though it's so difficult for me to even believe that anyone might be able to help me or heal me, I believe this man, this Jesus, has the power of God. And so she creeps through the crowd and she just touches the edge of his cloak. Let's give Alex a hand. Alex, you did great. The Oscar for the best high school boy impersonating a Jewish man goes to Alex. Good job. So this woman, she creeps through the crowd to touch Jesus because she believes him to be Messiah. She believes him to have the the power and healing touch of God. And then we're told this in verse 29. Immediately her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, "'Who touched my clothes?' Like, this is the most Star Wars Jesus moment in the entire scripture. It's just like... I sense a breach in the force. The power has gone out from me, right? Oh, Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, shoot. I forgot. Matt, I... Pastor, I forgot. Pastor Matt, you have dibs on all Star Wars references and sermons. And I just... Oh, I... I will never do it again. Can, I, just please forgive me on that. I will not reference... Star, that's your territory. Here we go. Okay. And once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him, he turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? 31. You see the people crowding against you? His disciples answered. And yet you can ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, daughter. See, he cares for this woman the way Jairus cared for his little girl. Daughter, oh, so beautiful. Your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Remember at the very beginning when we talked about this being a public moment, it happens in this crowd on the lake shore. The reason I believe Jesus turns and asks, who touched me? is because he does not want this incident to go unnoticed. He does not want this to simply be an exchange between he and this woman. He wants everyone on the shore that day to see the kind of faith that this woman has placed in him. That's what Jesus longs for. Do you see her? Do you see that faith? Do you see who she believes I am? Do you see the way she risks it all to seek me? Now sometimes people take this passage and others like it, and they'll say something like, if you have enough faith, you can get healed. If you're sick, if you're dying, if you have cancer, all you have to do is believe hard enough and God will heal you. Friends, let me be clear, that is not what the Bible is trying to say here. In this passage... What Jesus is telling you and I is that it does not matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you're this prominent guy or if you're this lowly woman. If you're rich or poor, black or white, east side, west side, Jew, Greek, slave, free, male, female. Jesus says, the kingdom I bring has nothing to do with your societal standing in this world. It has nothing to do with what people in the church think of you. Jesus says that is not what matters to God. What does matter to God, according to Jesus, is our sense of desperation for Him. How much do you know that you need Him today? You see, now we've met two people, two individuals who wholeheartedly, publicly, desperately have put their faith in Him. 35, while Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Friends, know this. If you put your faith in Christ, there will be moments, many moments, when you feel like it's not working. When it feels like God is not coming through, like he is not doing for you what you want him to do. There will be voices people will tell you. Don't bother with Jesus anymore. He doesn't work. Prepare for that. Listen to what Jesus says. Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. Don't be afraid. Don't listen to the voices. Don't have doubt. Do not let fear win. Just keep following, keep trusting. Keep having faith in me. Jesus did not let anyone, 37, did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Wildest commotion and wailing. The child is not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him. They laugh in the face of Jesus. Friends, in the Jewish culture, when someone died, there were some different phases to the funeral process. The first phase was the tearing of garments. You would tear your garments to show your extreme grief and agony. And then what they would do is they would hire professional mourners. They would hire groups of women to come in to the home where the person had died, and these women would, as loudly as they could, scream and wail the name of the person who was deceased. And so that's what's happening here. These women have been hired, they've been called in, they are now in the home, they are screaming, they are wailing the name of this little girl. It would have been a very chaotic scene, full of a lot of commotion. It sounds kind of weird to us, but it was normal in that day. Jesus walks in on this. And it's obvious that these these women, these professional mourners, sometimes there would have been flute players as well. They don't really care for this family. They don't really care for this man. They don't care for this little girl. They are simply there to do a job. They are only there going through the motions of grief. Their grief is not real. They are not there seeking God on behalf of this little girl in any way. And Jesus shows up on the scene and we see their insincerity and the fact that they laugh in his face. And Mark says, now let's compare. Now let's compare the faith that we have seen in Jairus and this bleeding woman with these professional mourners. Two people who have wholeheartedly, desperately, humbly been seeking God and people who just show up on the scene, go through the motions and don't really believe that God can make a difference. And the obvious question today, friends, is this. Who are we? Who are we more like? Jairus and the woman? Or this crowd of women who just show up to a religious event and go through the motions and don't expect anything special to happen from God? Who are we, Cedar Mill? Who do we want to be? After he put them all out, that's Jesus, after Jesus put them all out, just out of here, you guys, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talatha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely what? Astonished At this, they were completely astonished. Friends, if we will, if we have the courage, if we have the humility, if we have the boldness to put our faith, our wholehearted, full, I don't care who sees me, faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible says we will be astonished at what He does in our midst, will be utterly blown away. And I guess the question I want to offer to us today, my very first message with you, I just want to ask you this, church. Will you join me? Will you, will you help me? Will you go with me as we seek to trust God desperately together? Will you pursue Jesus with me in such a way that we might be astonished at the things He does in our midst and through us in this world and in this city to advance the kingdom of God? Will you trust Jesus with me in a way that we might be astonished at Him? I hope that you will, friends, because I need to say one more thing. The reason I ask is because I need your help. Like Pete said... That is not something I can do alone. I will need your help. I will need your encouragement because to tell you the truth, sometimes I do not trust God as boldly or as radically or as consistently as I I wish that I did. Sometimes I hide behind my my own abilities. Sometimes I take refuge in the comforts of this world. Sometimes I settle for second best. And I need you, church, to say, no, Pastor, we will not settle for anything less than what God wants for us. I need you to remind each other. I need you to encourage and commit to one another, to me, me to you, so that we can do this thing together. Because this kind of faith, it's not easy. And it takes a community. And there will be times where I will need your grace and I certainly need your prayers. And so I'm asking you, One of the ways that you can be a part of this right away, right from the very beginning with me, is that starting today and this coming week, we have the opportunity to join with Christians from all over Portland to pray and fast about how we can follow God with such faith and boldness and obedience and desperation that we might be astonished at what He does in our city. So let me encourage you, friends, be a part of it. It's called Seven. We've been talking about it. Pastor Matt mentioned it last week in his sermon. and And let me just say, do it. Jump in on it. Choose one or more of the prayer nights to be a part of. Grab a hold of a fasting plan that will work for you and help you seek God. Let me say this: I don't like not eating. Anyone here just love it? I love not eating for seven days. That sounds great. Let the pro- no. It's awful. It's the worst, but it's the best because God uses that kind of stuff. When we purposely make ourselves reliant on Him and desperate for Him, He shows up and He does things that will astonish us. So do not not miss the opportunity to suffer together and seek God and watch Him do some, some great things. All right, one more thing and I'll be done. Some of you today, you showed up to church... And for some very specific reasons, you relate with Jairus, this dad, or this unnamed bleeding woman. You show up today and you're carrying something, you're facing something that's beyond you that you cannot fix on your own. Maybe you've been carrying it for a long time. Maybe it's just been a few days. I do not know. But you walk in here with something and it's overwhelming you. Let me encourage you. Give it to Jesus today. Take that thing, that relational struggle, that financial struggle, that health issue that continues to plague you. Take that and give it to Jesus today. One of the things I think Jesus loves about these two individuals is the humility they have to offer their problems to Him in front of the crowd. To just say, I don't care who sees, I don't care who knows, Jesus, I'm desperate for you and I need you. If that's you today, if you walked in here and you are carrying something that's got you on the edge of hopelessness, something real specific and you're thinking about it right now, let me just give you this chance. Acknowledge it before God and not just before some crowd, but before your church family. And reach out for Jesus the way this woman did. Reach out for Him and seek Him and ask Him to help you. Would you do that today? If you've got something, something specific that's plaguing you in your life right now and you need to surrender it to God, I invite you just to stand. Just as an act of boldness, thank you, that's great. As an act of desperation and faith to reach out for Jesus Christ and say, only you God, I need you, I'm desperate for you. God says, if you're willing to acknowledge your need for him in front of men, he will acknowledge you, Jesus says, before the Father. There's something so powerful, something so humbling and freeing about just saying, I need you, God, right now. There's something I'm facing, and I can't face it alone. Please, would you intervene? And I'll say this to those of you who are standing. If anyone else needs to stand, you just go ahead. Two things, I stand with you today. I've been standing, so you didn't get to see me stand, but I'll just go ahead and do it right now. There we go. I'm with you. (laughs) Facing some stuff that just seems a lot bigger than me. Second of all, in the same way Jesus turns and seeks this woman so that he can lock eyes with her, he sees you today. That's his promise. He sees you standing there. He knows your pain, he knows your struggle, and he is with you. And the same way he he changes his plans to walk with Jairus through this issue, he will walk with you today as well. He will walk with you because he loves you. And I do not know what he'll do. I do not know his plan for you, but his promise is this. I will never leave you nor forsake you. We will get through this together. So church, for those of you who stood... Thank you for your faith. Thank you for being an example for us. The rest of us, if we'd all stand. I'm going to close this with a word of prayer before we receive uh, communion together. But if someone was standing near you, just go ahead and lay a hand on their shoulder or on their arm and just pray for them. I'm going to pray. Join me in praying for one another right now. Father, thank you for these folks who stood. Thank you for your promise and your word to meet us and help us and change us So often, God, it seems you do meet us in the middle of our suffering. And so, in a weird way, we thank you for our our trials and our struggles. I ask for healing, for peace, perseverance, hope, and a a clear sense of your presence in the lives of every single person who stood in this room today. Lord, as we prepare our hearts to receive uh, the meal that you gave us, Help us to know your love and help us to know your power. It's all for your glory, Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.